you close your Bible, would you open it again to Colossians chapter 2? And uh, just one verse, verse 8. Take heed, lest there shall be anyone that maketh spoil of you through his philosophy and deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Paul goes on from this verse to describe Christ or describe him in both his person and especially in his office as the one through whom we are given salvation and life, the very one who has blotted out the writing in ordinances, written in ordinances that were against us, nailing them to the cross, verse 14, having despoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And it is in this particular context that he warns his readers, the members, and uh, perhaps others, friends, um, believers, but not yet members of the church in Colossae, which had a relationship to other churches um, in that particular area. And we know factually that these letters were shared with various ones, that is, various churches then received uh, second in a secondhand fashion these particular letters. Now, I've selected verse 8 for two reasons, at least. One, I suppose, selfish, and that is I found out this morning at 8 o'clock that Stefan was sick, so um, I needed something to, to say, needed something to preach. So actually, you've heard some of this before in a prayer meeting devotional a number of years ago, um, and I could see some of you now flipping through your notebooks to see where that was. But at any rate, so uh, much of this is, um, is somewhat, or should be at least somewhat familiar, but there's another reason, and that is that the warning that Paul issues in verse 8 is as important and as relevant as it was in the first century. Now, we don't want to necessarily be what I sometimes call negative Nancys, in other words, to be against everything, or at least people, we come across to people as if we're against everything. But in another sense, to be for something, for the truth, you have to be against that which is not true, and it just doesn't work, it just doesn't work any other, other way. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's setting this in the context of glorious truths about Christ, what it means to be identified with him, what it means to believe on him, what it means to have our, our sins taken away, blotted out, and all of the rest. And it's in that context that he warns these Colossian Christians of being caught up in the philosophies of the day. 
And so if I were to give a, a title to this, which I probably did even years ago when I used this in prayer meeting, I would entitle it The Culture and the Christian. Here is Paul telling us to stand apart from and against the culture in which we find ourselves. Now, there are four or five things that we can actually say uh, from this particular verse. Notice Paul's anxiety, first of all. Paul begins with, take heed. It literally, be on the lookout. Pay attention. Pay attention, and as we'll come to see, pay attention to the world in which you live in order to not accept it, not dialogue with it, not grow complacent with it, but to, as we'll see, to oppose it, to beware, to be on the lookout. And so here you have an imperative, a command, which is what an imperative is. It's command, which, of which several things can be said. First of all, it's a command which is cautionary. It's a warning. Be on the lookout, not for something good, but be on the lookout for those things that would interrupt your faith, destroy your faith, compromise your faith. Be on the way, be on the lookout for things that are dangerous. And so here is something that is cautionary. It's, it's a warning. Look out, be on the lookout. But secondly, it's also compulsory. It's, it's necessary. That is, Paul is not giving his readers a, a choice as to whether or not they want to be on the lookout for these things. But it's a necessity. And thirdly, it's also continuous. It's in the present tense. You, you can't see that, the original, in your English Bibles, but it's in the present tense. This is something that is to mark us and to characterize us uh, all of the time. Um, it's something from which there is no vacation. Now, we enjoy vacations. We're coming up on vacation months. Um, we enjoy getting away and taking some time off. But there are some things uh, about which there is no time off. There is no vacation that we are to be on the lookout. And the fourth thing here in Paul's anxiety is that it's in the second person plural. So the, the point here is not that just a few of us, those who are marked out in some quarters as super spiritual, or the ones who like to read and like to think and uh, who, who read philosophy and theology and, and all sorts of things. But it's, it's a call to absolutely every single Christian, regardless of his temperament or his status in the church, regardless um, of, again, of her personality or of, of what it is she brings to the table. But here is something that is directed to all of us to which all of us, about which all of us have a responsibility. Beware. Look out. Literally be on the lookout for, and we can translate it that way because in English, again, 
it's in the second person plural. So be on the lookout for, and then he's going to tell us. And so it begins on this note of, of anxiety. Paul is, is anxious for the people of God as every pastor, every minister, every elder, every deacon ought to be, but every one of us as well as a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice the ambiguity or anonymity of the text. Notice Paul says, take heed lest any one make spoil of you. Lest any man, lest any person, lest any individual. So Paul doesn't necessarily have one thing in mind, or even if he has one particular thing in mind, he's broadening his scope to include all of us. Don't be drawn in, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But lest any person, any one person, leader, teacher, person of influence, no matter how significant or important um, or prominent a person might be. But also suggests when he says anyone, lest anyone spoil you, what he's also telling us that these or this problem of cultural influence and false teaching can come from a variety of sources. And so just as you mark out one thing to be concerned about, to be aware of, another one comes along. And that doesn't mean that the first one has been dealt with. It's still there. And so before you know it, you have a whole list of things about which we ought to exercise caution. Now, again, we ought not to go looking for these things as, as if that's our task rather than, say, sanctification and growth in the things of God and worship. But they, they will find you. <laughs> that's the kind of world in which we live, everywhere we turn. And now, of course, with the Internet, the problem is legion. The problem is, is absolutely enormous. All you need is a special skill set to devise a fancy-looking website, and you've won the day. If you don't have a fancy-looking website, you don't win the day. And so Paul is saying here, there are these false teachings that can come from a variety of sources. So don't pin all of your, pin the tail on the donkey notes uh, against just one leader, one position, one theologian, one pastor, but it can come from a variety of sources. And some of us have been talking here in the church of certain events, not in our world or in our circles, but in broader evangelical circles, but it's one of many, and they'll just keep reappearing, and they will change. They're like a chameleon. They'll, they'll change their colors, and here they come, and Paul says, 
in addition to everything else you're doing and delighting in Christ and rejoicing in him, be on the lookout. And be on the lookout in this sort of anonymous sense as that you'll never know where the next attack is going to come from. Thirdly, we've noticed Paul's anxiety. We've also noticed the anonymity or the multiplicity of this problem. But also know the, notice thirdly the advocacy. That is, those who are advocating or the way they're advocating. And it's subtle, and that's what Paul is saying. It's described in terms of entrapment. Lest there be those that lead you astray, those that entrap in, in in you. The, the attacks aren't always frontal, um, but they're, they're subtle. The offensive is not always direct. There are those who uh, and entrap, maketh spoil of you, entrap you, making a captive to be led away with is the idea. And so there you are, and along comes something or someone, and you're being carried along. That's how error often influences the church. That was the case. If I could use an illustration, I think we could use illustrations far closer to the present, but that was the, the problem in the old uh, um, uh, modernist fundamentalist controversy around the turn uh, into, the, into the 20th century, is that there were those who came into the church and rather subtly began changing the message, changing the teaching, and there were folks that were in the church that didn't catch it right away. And they were being led along. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And again, being led along with is in the present tense. It suggests that those who are doing this are unyielding and they're persistent and they'll keep saying the same thing and doing the same thing again and again and again. So we've seen something about how all of this works. Paul's anxiety, this is a problem, and it's a problem that will never go away. And it will come from a variety of sources, variety of individuals. No one person, leader, or teacher uh, necessarily, though we can identify them, but there are many of them. And the advocacy is a subtle, it's not a frontal attack, it's not a, a frontal charge and catches often the believer unawares and makes a captive of them as they're led along from point to point to point. Give up this point, then the next point is given up, then the next point, and so forth. Now, fourthly, notice the adversary. Who is it that Paul, or what is it that Paul has in mind? Well, I think that at the very least we need to say this, is that the enemy is in the realm of ideas. If we're not careful, we get caught up in personalities. And we say, well, what a 
what a nice-looking person. What a nice-looking family they have. What a, what a legacy coming from a particular family. Or, or something he said really, really, really touched me. And so this can't be that bad. Well, we need to take it out of the realm of personality. The personalities are involved, and they have to be mentioned. But the point is, what Paul has in view here, you'll notice he doesn't mention a particular name. He's talking about ideas. And notice he says several things about the adversary or the realm of ideals, ideas. First of all, he refers to it as the tradition of men. That's rather broad, is it not? The tradition of men. It can be, um, again, it's from the realm of ideas. It can be from the realm of science. It can be from the realm of the humanities. It can be from, from all sorts of 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 places. The point that Paul is making is that the source is not divine. The source doesn't come from God. It's the rudiments of the world, the human wisdom, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. And so the source is not divine. It's clear that the source is human. And that's not as difficult to tell as you might think. We have the Bible. We have the Bible in our hands, and we're being taught the Bible, and you read the Bible, and you're reading books uh, about the Bible and theology and all of the rest. It's not as difficult to tell that which comes from God and that which comes from another source. The source is not divine. It's human wisdom. And so it's the tradition of men, whatever that is that's been handed down by men and men alone. Secondly, notice the element of deception. It's called vain or empty. Vain deceit. It's empty. It has no real power. It has no real authority and it's deceitful, it leads astray. And so Paul speaks of the tradition of men, and the tradition of men that is marked by deception. And then thirdly, he speaks of the perception of the world. He uses a phrase here called the rudiments of the world. And it means the essential elements of the world, the rudiments of the world, the components of the cosmos. Now, there are two ways this could be viewed and have been viewed. There are some who say that this refers to the spirits of the world, kind of mystical demonic um, spirit that pervades. But more likely it refers in this context to the world's principles or rules. And demons and the demonic lay behind that 
but it's something that is evident to us as we're being led astray by the principles and the philosophic systems of the world or the world's values. Now, what makes this so dangerous is that this is the milieu in which we live, which is why I think this is what Paul has in mind. It's the milieu, it's the, it's the context, it's, it's the air we breathe. We're marked by the culture in which we find ourselves. And I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. And one of the reasons that it's so important for Neil and for me to uh, meet um, more regularly than we have before is that we come from two different cultures, two different native languages. My Spanish is pretty rough. His English is really good, but we still end up talking past each other because historically we haven't breathed the same cultural air. But we can say of ourselves that that's where we are. We're, we've been born here. We've lived X number of years here. And the very air we breathe is, is filtered. That's the filter for our culture. Or the filter for our culture is the air that we breathe. breathe the, the, the philosophical worldviews of the world in which we find ourselves. Now, I suspect we all have furnaces in our homes and we have filters that filter out the bad stuff. Um, and we change them every so often. Some of us, maybe not as often as we should, but the point is uh, we change those filters and it keeps the air clean. And sometimes we even purchase air cleaners because we want to have even better air. I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is getting at here is it's so easy to be drawn into the culture at so many multiple levels, religiously, ecclesiastically, politically, just on and on the list goes of how easy it is to be drawn into the world view that is the very air that we breathe and we can't help ourselves. This is where we live. We were born in the 18th century or the 17th or the 11th century or the 13th century. I think maybe I used this illustration before, but I had a history professor in, uh, in college who recommended a book we read entitled The 13th Century, The Greatest of Centuries. I could never figure out why the 13th century was so great. But anyway, there, there you have it. Probably it was because of the influence of of Middle Ages uh, philosophers and stuff. But be that as it may, you know, that, that, those aren't the periods of time in which, in, in which we live and move and have our being, if I could borrow New Testament language. And so we end on a note of how absurd, the absurdity of being drawn in this way. And the absurdity is marked out for us in a twofold fashion. First of all, it's absurd because it's cultural and therefore it changes. And we're products of a particular culture and because of a certain age that most of us find ourselves at a particular time in that culture. And that's a problem because it's time bound. 
But the second reason, the views and the values of this world, the world runs on it. We ought not to because it's cultural. But secondly, and here's the big thing, it's not of Christ. That's the point Paul is making. It's not of Christ. If you notice the larger context, the larger context is not the warning. That's a sub part, a piece. The, the, the apology, the defense, the, the center of this is Christ. Paul says, it's not after Christ. Think about that. Think about the things that move you, that strike you as important. And Paul may be saying it's important culturally and it's been an important part of your past, but it's not of Christ. It's not of Christ. This mystery, Paul says, the mystery of Christ, meaning that it was once a mystery it's not that it's mysterious and we can't understand it, but it was something that was once hidden. Now it's been revealed. And we know, and we know him, and we know about him, and we know him personally. We know him savingly. And we have been circumcised by him through his death. The flesh of sin has been carved away through the death of Jesus Christ. It's the mystery, the revelation, and we're called upon to be faithful to him. Now, the last thing that I would say in this sermon or devotional that I had preached once before is not only is there an apology here for Christ, and perhaps I should have ended on that note. But also notice the partiality of that which Paul is opposed to. What he's saying to us is this. Brothers and sisters, the world is not neutral. The world in which we live is not a neutral environment. And as uh, R.C. Sproul uh, once said, or actually wrote a book, ideas about ideas have consequences. And what we believe and what we're drawn to will affect us. How many Christian leaders how many churches, how many denominations, conventions, and associations that some of us once loved and called home, called as our home, were drawn to patterns of this world. And I submit to you that we need to be on the lookout as individuals and certainly as a church to be on the lookout, lest we're drawn away and carried away by the principles, by the philosophies, the world principles, the world views 
in which we live. May we not be guilty as God's people, as a body of God's people, as individuals that make up the body of God's people. May we not be guilty of that. And may we also remember that it is if, that it, if it is not of Christ, it's not worth our attention. Father in heaven, we pray that our faith and our trust and our confidence, our worldview will always be of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.